Hi, good morning. It's great to see you this morning. Before we dive into Ezra 10 here and finish our series on the book of Ezra, just wanted to pause here for a moment and give you a brief personal update as well as express my gratitude. As many of you know, our son Dawson was in the hospital for a period of about 18 days over the last three weeks and also spent a time during, in ICU during that time period as well. I'm grateful to God to report that he's back home, praise God, and actually, Lord willing, he'll be here in the second service this morning. He's doing much better. We're grateful for that. I also want to express my gratitude to you for praying. I know last week when he was in ICU, many of you were praying during this service, and so thank you. And I know many of you over the course of his 18 days in the hospital were praying for him on a daily basis. Philippians talks about how through the prayers of the saints and the help of the Holy Spirit, we are delivered through our trials. And so I just want you to know, like, we definitely felt your prayers during that time, so thank you for praying for him. I also want to express gratitude to Jim. Uh, Last Saturday, Dawson had a medical emergency on Saturday morning and got put in ICU. And so that meant I reached out to Jim around noon on Saturday and said, you may need to preach tomorrow morning. And I'll just say this as a person who preaches on a weekly basis. There's nothing I love more than routine. And so the idea that you'd find out on noon on Saturday that you might have to preach the next day, that is a very difficult thing to do. So I just want to express gratitude to Jim for being willing to do that. Thankfully, he'd been working ahead because he was planning to preach today on Psalm 43. So God had providentially prepared that, but that's still a difficult thing, so I'm thankful for that. I do trust that God in his wise providence knew that Psalm 43 is what you needed to hear last week. I also trusted in his wise providence that even though we were queued up for Ezra 10 last week, and in fact, if you came last week, the bulletin had Ezra 10, had all the questions from Ezra 10, for some reason, we needed to hear Ezra 10 this morning. Maybe you weren't here last week, and this is the message you need to hear. Or maybe you weren't ready to hear Ezra 10 last week, but this morning you are. I feel entirely confident that in his good providence, Ezra 10 is where we need to be this morning. So that said, thank you. Let's get to it. Let's pray here. Uh, Father, thank you for your kindness to us. You express it on a daily basis. Certainly, I think of your kindness towards our family over these last three weeks, how you've sustained us. I also think of your kindness to us in giving us your word. And so this morning, I pray that we would see it as a kindness, that we would be reminded of your goodness as we open your word together, that we would see you are a merciful God. Father, help us to learn from your word this morning and help us to benefit from what your word says. Help us to love what your word says and help us to do this for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. So on October 31st of 1517, Martin Luther famously nailed his 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. It seems that Luther's intent was merely to spark a debate with his fellow university professors regarding corruption in the Catholic Church and specifically the sale of indulgences. Whatever Luther's intent may have originally been, the nailing of the 95 theses to the church door ended up being a pivotal moment in church history. In fact, many would trace the beginning of the Protestant Reformation back to that very moment in October of 1517. And because of its pivotal role in church history, I'm guessing that some of you, maybe even many of you, are at least vaguely familiar with the details of that story of Luther nailing his 95 theses to the church door. But what you're probably less familiar with is the actual content of what he nailed to the door. Put it this way, I've never met anyone who can recite five of the 95 theses. In fact, I'm not even sure if I've met anyone who can recite one of the 95 theses. As I was reminded a couple weeks ago during the trivia game at the Harvest Festival, I have plenty of friends who know random things about Star Wars and Husker football. But to my knowledge, I have a lot less friends who are experts on the 95 Thesis. And you'll be happy to know my aim this morning is not necessarily to change that. We're not going to spend time this morning walking through each of the 95 Theses, talking about what Luther said and what he meant or didn't mean. 
But I do want to draw your attention this morning to one of the theses, and specifically to the first thesis. Luther's first of his 95 theses simply said this, and I'm quoting here. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. Now, I think it's fair to say that of the 95 theses, that first thesis is the best known of the 95. But that's not why I'm drawing to your attention this morning. My goal is not to equip you for future trivia games. Perhaps you could now answer the question, which of the 95 theses was the most famous? And you could answer the first one. That's not why I bring it up. Rather, I bring up the thesis, and specifically thesis number one this morning, because I think that first thesis captures a truth that is oftentimes neglected in the modern church. Namely, repentance is a necessary part of the daily Christian life. In the church today, there are certain words that we tend to gravitate towards and emphasize most. Words like grace, mercy, love, gospel, forgiveness, redemption. And listen, all of those words are great words, beautiful words even, and words worth emphasizing in light of what we read in the Bible. But I'm afraid that we often emphasize those words and neglect other words that carry similar, similar biblical weight. And one of those neglected words is the word repentance. In Mark chapter 1, when Jesus begins his teaching ministry and proclaims the good news of the kingdom, the first thing he says is this, and I'm quoting here from Jesus, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In Luke chapter 24, after his resurrection, when Jesus is teaching his disciples and giving some of his final instructions, he again emphasizes the theme of repentance. In Luke 24, he says this, and again quoting, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. And then throughout the rest of the New Testament, passages like Romans 2, 2 Corinthians 7, Revelation 2 and 3, the importance of repentance for daily living is emphasized. So here's the thing then about Martin Luther's thesis number one. The reason why Luther's thesis resonated at the time and has resonated throughout the years is not because Luther himself was saying anything novel. It's because his emphasis on repentance is thoroughly biblical. But sadly, we often fail to talk about this important concept. And in that, we lose something. Because as our passage today reminds us, if we are going to faithfully follow God, repentance is a necessary part of the equation. Now, having said that, we should probably clarify what we mean by the word repentance. At its most basic root, at its most basic root the word repent means to change one's mind. But given the Bible's emphasis on repentance leading to change action, perhaps a better bi- biblical definition would be a change of mind that results in a change of action. Or, to use a fuller definition from Bible scholar Timothy Miller, repentance is the result of encountering truth that leads to a changed mind, an affected heart, and a revolutionized life. But having said that, let's be honest here. Sometimes the best way to understand a word is not to define it, but to see it in action. And that's where today's passage becomes exceptionally helpful. Two weeks ago in Ezra 9, we saw the people of God confronted by their sin. They disobeyed God's commands in marrying the people of the land, the idolatrous people of the land. But in today's passage, in Ezra 10, we see their response to their sin. And we could sum up their response in one word, repentance. And so here's my hope this morning. My hope this morning is in looking at the repentance of the people of God in Ezra chapter 10. I hope that we can come to a better understanding of what repentance looks like and we could actually start to repent more often in our own lives. Because if Martin Luther was right, and I think that he was, that the whole of the Christian life should be one of repentance, it seems important to me that we would know what repentance actually looks like. 
So to that end then, let's turn our attention to Ezra chapter 10, where we see repentance in action. Our focus this morning is going to be on verses 1 to 17. Verses 18 to 44 contains a list of names of people who have sinned. Now I think those names are important because they remind us that Ezra 10 involves real people. I don't think reading that list this morning will necessarily actually help us to better understand the storyline. So for the sake of time, and also because I've read enough names in the book of Ezra, I'm just going to read verses 1 to 17 this morning. I may allude to verse 18 to 44, but I would encourage you at some point, just read the list for yourself, make sure I'm not missing anything. I don't think you're going to miss much. It's just names, but it's worth reading anyway. That said, our focus is going to be on verses 1 to 17. If you would now, please stand then as we turn our attention to those 17 verses at the beginning of Ezra chapter 10. So the words will be on the screen here. You can follow along in your own Bibles, or you can just listen as I read. But Ezra 10, starting in verse 1, says this. This is the Word of God, by the way. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jael, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there's hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehohanan, the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem, and that if anyone did not come within three days, by order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeited, and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month on the twentieth day of the month, and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You've broken faith and married foreign women, and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so, we must do as you've said. But the people are many, and it's a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open, nor is this a task for one day or for two, for we have greatly transgressed in this matter. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times, and with them the elders and judges of every city, until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, the son of Ashiel, and Jehiza, the son of Tikva, opposed this, and Meshulam and Shabbatai, the Levites, supported them. Then the returned exiles did so. Ezra the priest selected men, heads of fathers' houses, according to their fathers' houses, each of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to examine the matter. And by the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. It's the word of God, you may be seated. So I think if we were to summarize Ezra 10 in a sentence here, it would be this sentence, the people of God repent of their sin. Now again, in chapter 9, as we saw two weeks ago, the people of God were confronted in their sin by the word of God. Specifically, they were confronted by the reality that they'd failed to keep God's commands regarding marriage. God had commanded his people not to marry the people of the land. Now, as we've already pointed out multiple times, but it's worth saying again, that command had nothing to do with race and everything to do with religion. God did not want his people to be unequally yoked with those who were not following him. 
did not want his people to marry the idolatrous people of the land because he knew that their hearts might be drawn away and worship the gods of the lands themselves. But despite this command, the people disobeyed. And in Ezra 9, we saw Ezra respond to the sin of the people with mourning and prayer. He grieved the sin of the people and he cried out to God. And in crying out, he simply acknowledged, we are guilty and God is just and righteous, but also gracious and merciful. Now in chapter 10, we see the full response of the people. And again, we could summarize their response in a word, repentance. And thus the beauty of Ezra 10 is it helps us to understand what repentance looks like in action. Repentance is one of those things that's much easier to talk about in theory than it is to do in reality. And part of the reason why that's the case is because I think we don't always understand what true repentance looks like. But Ezra 10 gives us a bit of a roadmap here as to what repentance looks like, not just in theory, but in reality. More specifically, I think Ezra 10 gives us three crucial elements to true and biblical repentance. And given that repentance is a necessary part of the Christian life, I want to make sure that we see all three of those crucial elements in Ezra 10 so that we can understand what repentance might look like in our own lives. All right, so again, three crucial elements of true and biblical repentance. The first crucial element of true and biblical repentance is simply this. Confess your wrongdoing. Confess your wrongdoing or confess your sin. Now, one of the things that we talked about as we examined Ezra's prayer in Ezra 9 is that Ezra was fully willing to acknowledge the guilt of his people. He did not sugarcoat their sin. He did not make excuses. He simply owned it. We are guilty. And we see that same attitude of confession and acknowledgement of guilt with the people of God in Ezra 10. Look first at verse 1 into verse 2. Verse 1, while Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jael, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. So in verse 1, we see Ezra praying and making confession. And in verse 2, we see Shechaniah, on behalf of the people, acknowledging the guilt of the people. As he says it in verse 2, We have broken faith with our God, and we have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. So like Ezra in chapter 9, Shechaniah does not make excuses or justify the sin of the people. Instead, he flatly acknowledges, we have broken faith. We see this same attitude of confession in verses 10 through 12. Verse 10, and Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, you have broken faith and married foreign women and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so. We must do as you have said. So in Ezra verses, chapter 10, verses 10 through 12, Ezra reminds the people of their sins and urges the people to make confession and make some changes. And the people respond by confessing and acknowledging that Ezra's right. As the people put it in verse 12, It is so. You are right, Ezra. What you're saying is true. So with both Shechaniah in verse 2, with Ezra also, and then the people in verse 12, the response is the same one that we saw in chapter 9. We are guilty. And in that is a valuable lesson for all of us. If we're going to live a life of repentance, it starts with a willingness to confess our sin and wrongdoing. But that's much easier said than done, isn't it? Because the reality is that we like to make excuses and we like to downplay our sin. I've certainly noticed this to be true in my own life. 
For example, if Tanya points it out, if Tanya points out that I responded to one of the kids in sinful anger, my natural tendency is to try to play a game of verbal jiu-jitsu in which I blocked accusation. Sometimes I say it out loud, sometimes it's in my head, but when she says something like that, I say, well, I don't know if I was angry, I was more frustrated. And it wasn't that I was raising my voice so much as I was just trying to be emphatic in my point. And the reason why I was being emphatic is because the kids didn't listen last time we had the conversation, so I wanted to make sure I got through to them clearly. In other words, instead of just calling my sin, sin, I reframed the situation to try to soften my guilt. I even tried to pass off the blame as if it's their fault. Well, the reason why I got kind of angry was because they brought it on. But downplaying our guilt or passing blame is not the path of repentance. It's the path that many take, no doubt. But it's not a path that leads to actual restoration. Plain and simple, we need to confess our sin and do so without justifying it or softening it or passing blame off on someone else. In other words, we need to learn how to confess our sin in a proper way. When our kids were younger, based on some advice we'd received from some parenting mentors, we tried to teach our kids the right way to confess sin and apologize. The basic gist of the teaching was that true confession and apology means that A, you're specific in naming the sin that you committed. B, you don't pass blame or downplay your sin. And C, then you ask for forgiveness. So bad confession of sin might sound like this. I'm sorry I wasn't very nice, but you weren't being very nice either. You please accept my apology. That type of confession is vague. You're not really owning any sin, being nice. That's very generic. It's passing blame. Well, it's kind of your fault that I wasn't nice to you. And it doesn't use the biblical language of forgiveness. A good confession of sin, on the other hand, might sound more like this. I'm really sorry I hit you on the head with that toy. By the way, you'll be happy to know that is not anything I've done recently. I'm using this as an example of something kids do, right? I'm sorry I hit you on the head with that toy that was unkind and unloving. Will you please forgive me for being unkind and hitting you on the head? There's a vast difference between the first apology and the second. The first is blame deflecting. It's downplaying sin. The second is owning your sin and confessing it honestly and then asking for forgiveness. Now, as we've learned in parenting over the years, it's much harder for kids to do the second because they don't like taking responsibility and owning their sin. But having said that, let's be honest here. Taking responsibility and owning sin is not just something that's hard for kids. It's hard for adults too. In fact, I think you can make the argument it's more difficult for adults because we've often established long-term patterns of deflecting blame and playing verbal jiu-jitsu. We've learned the art of deflecting. But listen, if we're going to live a life of repentance, we need to learn to call a spade a spade. When we get angry and blow up, we need to own it and admit, I was sinfully angry in what I said. Please forgive me. When we stretch the truth and slightly change what happened, we need to own it and admit, I lied. I failed to honor God with my tongue and in the process I hurt you too. When we engage in sexual morality of one sort or another, even if it's just being lustful in our thoughts, we need to own that and admit, I've transgressed God's commands. I've done what's not right. I've rebelled against him and against his authority. Listen, here's the reality. I think all of us have an inner lawyer within us trying to defend ourselves in the courtroom of our own minds. We try to tell ourselves, it's not as bad as it seems. It wasn't really my fault. Everybody else was doing it too. But as we're reminded in Ezra 10, the person who longs to walk with God will avoid that type of thinking. Instead, they will openly and honestly confess their wrongdoing. I blew it. I'm guilty. I sinned. 
But having said that, we should also acknowledge it can be pretty easy to say all of the right things when it comes to confession, but not actually mean them or believe them. Again, to use an example from the parenting world, anyone who's been a parent for any amount of time can attest. Just because you make your kids say the right thing in terms of an apology and confession doesn't mean they're actually sorry about their sin. Out loud, they may say the right words. I'm sorry I whacked you on the head with a toy. But you can tell in their minds they're thinking they deserved it and I'm glad I did it. And that brings us to the second and crucial element of true and biblical repentance. Crucial element number two. Grieve your sin. Grieve your sin. So confess your sin, yes, but grieve your sin. I want you to notice here in Ezra 10 that the people didn't just confess their sin by way of lip service. Rather, it's obvious as you read the passage, they are greatly grieved by their sin too. Look at verse 1. Verse 1 says this, While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. So Ezra weeps and casts himself down before the house of God, and the people weep too. In fact, we're told here they weep bitterly. And we're not exactly sure what that means, but we do know it means that their weeping was intense. If someone told me that my wife was out in the fellowship hall weeping, I would be concerned. If they told me that Tony was out in the fellowship hall weeping bitterly, my concern would be raised even more. This bitter weeping of verse 1 indicates the nature of the grief that people were experiencing over their sin. It wasn't just that they were kind of weeping. They were weeping bitterly. Their sin troubled them. We see this same grief continue with Ezra's actions in verse 6. Verse 6, And Ezra withdrew from before the house of God, and went to the chamber of Jehohanan, the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. So Ezra has made some very public confessions of concern for the people's sin in chapter 9 and chapter 10, but here we see him even in his private room, grieving the sin of the people. He fasts and mourns because the people have been faithless. And in verse 9, we see the people grieving their sin in the same types of ways. Verse 9, then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month on the 20th day of the month, and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. Now the details of verse 9 I find to be refreshingly candid here and remind us of the authenticity of Scripture. Yes, the people are trembling because of their sin, but also they are trembling because it was cold. This was the ninth month, which is the equivalent of our December, and it was cold and rainy. And so they were trembling, yes, because of their sin, because of the matter, but they were also trembling because it was just cold outside. That's an honest admission by, by the author of Ezra, who is Ezra. And it's one of those details that gives you more confidence in the historical accuracy of Scripture. Nevertheless, the larger point here is that in Ezra 10, the people don't just confess their sin, they clearly grieve their sin too. And there's a huge difference between the two, isn't there? There's a difference between merely confessing your sin with your mouth as opposed to confessing it and grieving it. It's entirely possible to confess sin, but not actually hate your sin. But to be a person who is walking in step with the Spirit is to be a person who not only confesses sin verbally, but it's also to be a person who hates their sin. It's one thing to say, I was angry, please forgive me. It's another to hate the fact that you're angry and be grieved by your anger. And we could do that with every sin in the book. It's one thing to say, oh, I'm sorry I did this. It's another to actually grieve your sin. 
Over the years, I've observed a lot of people hate when they're caught in their sin. And they hate the effects of their sin. And in such situations, they'll often confess their wrongdoing. But in many cases, they don't actually hate the sin itself. And therein lies the rub. It's one thing to grieve when, you, when you're caught in your sin. It's another thing to grieve the sin itself. Years ago, I knew a guy who was addicted to pornography. In my initial meeting with him, it was clear that he was, he was troubled by the effects of his sin. He didn't like what it did to his wife and family. But over time, it became clear he didn't really hate the sin itself. Now, he might have said that he did, but his actions proved otherwise. He was unwilling to take the radical steps necessary to actually deal with the sin. And I would argue the reason why he was unwilling to do so was because in the end, he didn't really hate the sin. 2 Corinthians 7 talks about the difference between worldly grief and godly grief. I think one of the fundamental differences between worldly grief which leads to death, and godly grief, which leads to life, is that worldly grief is inherently self-focused. We grieve the fact that the sin we've committed makes other people upset with us. We grieve that it makes our life more complicated. We grieve that our sin kind of messes things up. But godly grief, on the other hand, is upward-focused. Our primary concern is that we've offended a holy God. We tremble because we've rebelled against our Creator. Or to use language of verse 2, we've broken faith with our God. Worldly grief may produce sadness over sin and its effects, but godly grief produces genuine repentance. Because we genuinely hate our sin, and we want to get back to living in a way that pleases God. And that brings us to the third and final element of true and biblical repentance. To truly repent means you confess your sin and wrongdoing. It means you grieve your sin. But thirdly, it means you change your course. It means you change your course. Perhaps the key line in all of Ezra 10 is found in verse 11. For sake of context, let's go back to verse 10 here. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have broken faith and married foreign women, and so increased the guilt of Israel. And here's the line. Now then, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. So Ezra's charge here in verse 11 is straightforward. Make confession and then do his will. Which in the case of Ezra 10 meant that all those who had married foreign wives were to put away their wives. Now the text is careful to avoid the word divorce here, which perhaps hints that maybe their marriages were never legitimate to begin with. But as you read through Ezra 10, the inescapable conclusion here is the proper response for the people who had married foreign wives was to separate from their wives. And in saying that, I'm just going to be honest with you guys here. This text raises a lot of questions. There are a lot of things that we don't have answered in this particular passage. How did this work? Did they still provide financially for their wives? Did they ever see them again? What about their kids? We don't really know the answers to those questions. So we have to be honest in saying the radical response called for here in Ezra 10 raises some very thorny issues. But I think what we can say with confidence is that in light of what we read elsewhere in Scripture, we can safely conclude that what happens here in Ezra 10 is not meant to be descriptive of how we should live, but rather was unique to the circumstances in the book of Ezra. What I mean by that is this, given what we read in 1 Corinthians 7 and 1 Peter 3, it's obvious Christians today are not required to separate from their non-believing spouses in the same way that the people are required to do here in Ezra 10. In fact, both 1 Corinthians 7 and 1 Peter 3 would encourage Christians who are married to non-believers to remain with their non-believing spouses. So what's happening here in Ezra 10 is specific to the people of Israel and specific to this particular historical situation. Nevertheless, There are some difficulties here. 
But setting aside those difficulties, the larger point, and this is not difficult, the larger point is that we are being called as the people of God to take radical action in order to get our lives back in line with the will of God. That's what's happening in Ezra 10, and that's what's still happening today. The larger point that we see here in Ezra 10 does have application for us. To repent of your sin is not just to confess it and grieve it, but to repent of your sin is to turn from it and get back on track with God, even if it means you have to take radical action to do so. In Matthew 18, Jesus tells us, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Now clearly in that passage, Jesus is not telling us, amputate amputate your limb or actually gouge out your eye. He's simply using hyperbole to encourage us, take your sin seriously and do whatever it takes to get back on track, even if what it takes is somewhat radical. And listen, I think that message that we're seeing here in Ezra 10 and that Jesus gives us in Matthew 18 is a message we need to hear. Some of us in this room have sins that we know we struggle with, but the fact of the matter is we're unwilling to take the radical action necessary to get rid of the sin. Maybe some of you in this room this morning, maybe you struggle with pornography, but you're unwilling to cut off access to the pornography. Maybe you struggle with greed and materialism, but you're unwilling to take the necessary steps to reorient the way you spend money or think about money. Maybe you struggle to stay focused on the things of Christ, but you're unwilling to remove the things that distract you. Or to say another way, you're unwilling to get rid of your idols. You're unwilling to take the necessary action. Listen, at the end of the day, true repentance starts in the heart. We see our sin, we confess our sin, we grieve our sin, we hate our sin. But eventually, if there is a true movement in our hearts, it will lead to action. Listen, if I told Tanya that she's my favorite person in the world, and I love being with her, but I never actually did anything to spend time with her, I never rearranged my schedule to see her, I always let other things take precedence over her, at some point my words would ring hollow. By the same token, repentance is not just evidenced by saying the right things, it's evidenced eventually by your actions. Husbands, don't just tell your wives you're sorry for the ways you failed to love her and lead her. Actually take action to begin loving and leading better. Parents, don't just tell your kids that you're sorry that you've not given a better example of what it means to follow Christ. Take action to actually begin following Christ in a way that is more imitatable. Kids, don't just tell your parents you're sorry for disobeying the rules. Start taking action to obey the rules. Listen, true repentance starts in the heart, no doubt, but it will lead to action. To say you're sorry means nothing if it's not evidenced by action eventually. True repentance is seen in our attitude, that's true, but it's also seen in our actions. In Ezra 10, the people didn't just give lip service to their sin, they didn't just grieve their sin, eventually they took radical action, which is what we see at the end of the chapter. So to recap then, here's the roadmap provided for us in Ezra 10 as it relates to true and biblical repentance. Confess your wrongdoing, grieve your sin, change your course. And your motivation for doing so is because repentance is a necessary part of following God. All of us, and I mean all of us, are going to get off track at one point or another. And as Ezra warned the people in Ezra 9, if we don't get back on track, eventually we encounter the wrath of God. But if we take our sins seriously, and by the grace of God we do repent and get back on track, there is always hope. 
which is the beautiful truth that's presented for us in verse 2. This is my favorite verse in the whole chapter. Verse 2 says this, And Shechaniah, the son of Jeel, the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now, there's hope for Israel in spite of this. Now, what is the hope that Shechaniah is talking about in verse 2? The hope he's talking about is this. If we repent and if we come back to God, he's always waiting with open arms. And on this side of the cross, we know not only is God waiting with open arms, but he loved us so much that he sent his son to die for our sins. That if we would believe in him, we would not perish but have eternal life. In other words, God didn't just sit back and wait for us to come to him. He initiated. He sent his son to take the punishment for our sins. In doing so, he demonstrated his great love for us. He also tangibly offered us hope in the midst of our sin. Listen, no matter how far gone we are, if we come back in humble repentance, he is waiting. And that's true in a big picture sense. In the big picture sense, every person in this room needs to repent of their sin in a once and for all way and turn to Jesus Christ for the salvation of sins. Repentance and belief are two sides of the same coin. To believe in Christ is to turn from your sin and trust in Christ. And in a big picture sense, everyone in the room needs to do that. But the idea of God waiting for us if we come back to him in humble repentance is also true in the daily sense. Listen, I've shared this before, but I think it's worth sharing again. My mentor in college had three boys. And one of the things he would regularly tell his boys is this. Luby boys, we are going to sin sometimes. But when we do, we are going to be quick repenters. Now, I love that phrase, and it's one we've tried to use in our family on occasion too. Because I think it encapsulates the Christian life in a nutshell. We are going to sin sometimes. But when we do, let's be quick repenters. Let's confess our sin. Let's grieve our sin. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, let's change course. So listen, I don't know what sin you might be caught up in. But given a group this size, I would guess there's some pretty serious sin represented in this room this morning. And even if it's not serious in your mind, there's some sin that you're caught up in And no matter what size it is, if you will, it's still serious. So listen, I don't know what sin you're caught up in, but I know this. The good news is this. As we're reminded in Ezra 10 there's always hope, provided that we come back to him, provided that we repent and turn to him. So church, whatever sin you may be caught up in, and here's the good news this morning. If you confess your wrongdoing, if you grieve your sin, and by the power of the Holy Spirit change your course, he's waiting. He's waiting. So here's my plea with you this morning. Simply repent and come back. Repent and come back because repentance is a necessary part of the Christian life. Or to quote Martin Luther from thesis number one, the entire life of believers should be one of repentance. So church, let's take up the challenge here. Let's be quick repenters. And let's do so because we know that getting on back on, that in getting back on track, there's always more joy to be found when we live in a way that honors our Savior. Let's pray. God, we want to pause here for a minute and just acknowledge that we are sinners. We want to live in a way that honors you. So God, I I pray that you would help us this morning. If there's some sin that we're caught up in in our lives, I pray that you would help us to confess our sin. I pray that you would help us to hate our sin. And I pray you would help us to turn from our sin. 
More specifically, I, I know that there might be some people in this room right now who are caught up in some sin that is absolutely destroying their lives. God, I pray that this morning you would encourage that person, whatever sin it is they may be caught up, that it's not too late. That if they repent and come back, you are waiting with open arms. As second eye says in verse 2, yes, we have sinned greatly, but there's still hope. And the hope is that you are a good and gracious God. And so, Lord, if there are some here this morning who have never repented of their sins in a once and for all way, never trusted in you, they've never turned from their sin and trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation, I pray that today would be the day of their salvation. If there are others in this room who've confessed Christ, and yet they've been walking in sin for a period of time, I pray this morning you would use Ezra 10 to awaken them from their sin and to turn from it and to go back on the path. To follow you. Lord, I pray that you would help all of us this morning to see our own sin. Whether it's a big sin or a small sin, the reality is that we all struggle with sin. And I pray that you would help us to be quick repenters. Lord, I pray that we would see our sin quickly, that we would acknowledge it, that we would grieve it, that we would turn from our ways and we would get back on the path because we know in following you there is joy to be found. So Lord, help us this morning to be challenged by what we read here in Ezra 10, but also help us to remember the hope of the gospel, that it's never too late, that if we come back to you, you're waiting with open arms. And in fact, you're not just waiting with open arms, you initiated by sending your son. And in that, you remind us that you are a good and gracious God. So Lord, we acknowledge this morning we are great sinners, but we also delight in the fact that you are a great Savior. Help us to run to you this morning. Help us to turn from our sin and turn to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.